Hey, hi! Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Alex Larson, an academic, screenwriter, and unlikely battle rapper under the name Kid Twist. Yeah, I said battle rapper, and Alex turned that experience into the screenplay for Joseph Kahn's new movie, Bodied, which opened the Midnight Madness series at TIFF a couple of weeks ago and won the People's Choice Award for that program just this past Sunday. Isn't that cool? I think that's cool. Alex picked Princess Mononoke, Hayao Miyazaki's animated 1997 fantasy about a callow prince drawn into a war between gods and humans and everything in between after he's afflicted with a corrupting curse for saving his village from a demon. The first Studio Ghibli project acquired for the North American market by Miramax Films and released here in an English dub featuring heavy hitters like Billy Crudup, Claire Danes, Billy Bob Thornton, Minnie Driver, Gillian Anderson, and Jada Pinkett, its release helped legitimize anime on this side of the Pacific and set the stage for Miyazaki's Spirited Away to be the first Japanese production to win an Oscar for Best Animated Feature. But right now, let's focus on the prince, the boars, and the woman who runs with the wolves. This is someone else's movie. Well, I was thinking about a film that would be interesting to discuss from my perspective as a writer, Mm -hmm. and something that I've always been intrigued by, and that if you watch Body, you'll definitely see this. Um, If you read the novel I wrote, which you never will, because I'm never going to release it, (laughs) but I wrote a novel in my early 20s that was also very much along the same lines. I've always been very interested in presenting different groups of characters or people representing groups in society Mm -hmm. and examining something from all of their various points of view in a fictional way but that reflects kind of my perspective on reality because I that's kind of what I see reality as being you know it's all these competing narratives these competing interests of different groups but I have so rarely actually seen a narrative that tries to do that and princess mononoke i think is the one that really stands out to me in film that has that kind of narrative and that really accomplishes it and really makes you empathize with each different group um you know and i think it's become especially cliche i think in our uh, current age of HBO TV shows right. to say, oh, there's no real hero. But this is a story where there is no real hero. You actually do see the point of view of all the different characters, and you're kind of rooting for everyone at the same time, which I think is extremely unique. Mm. And as a writer who's tried to do that same thing, I know how incredibly difficult to do that is. So uh, from a from a writing and narrative point of view, I'm just so intrigued by it and I have such respect for what he was able to accomplish in that movie yeah now that you mention it it is weird that it's 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 generally a given that most movies are filled with characters acting out of Mm self-interest but this is the one that really does confront that Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. that calls every character out at one point or another yeah for not hypocrisy necessarily but Mm -hmm. there is always a confrontation there's a scene with every character maybe except the giant wolf yes who, (laughs) who seems to have a pretty good perspective of everything else but all of these fantasy characters exist in a world of responsibility mm-hmm. and everyone is held accountable right one way or another yeah and it's 
Um, I mean, mentioning HBO shows, it is really interesting, I think, to compare this to Game of Thrones that in was, particular. Yeah. Because it's a, it's a similar kind of... Uh, I think Game of Thrones has a similar kind of goal where it's trying to present a fantasy world in a realistic way. You could perhaps say Princess Mononoke has more, like superficially fantastical elements mm -hmm. but I think perhaps ironically to me it's more realistic than Game of Thrones because uh, Game of Thrones is just such this uh, it's such an American construction the way it's presented you know everyone's cool everyone's yeah. badass you know um, everything's gritty all the time and yes life can often be like that but sometimes it isn't and I think in Miyazaki's films in general, and even in Mononoke, which is perhaps uh, grittier than his usual tone, you still see these kind of lighter elements at play. You see people laugh and have fun. Um, and I think that's a big part of life, too. So yeah. to me, it's actually more realistic to capture all of those aspects than to just have everything on screen be dark all the time. Yeah. It's funny. There are no bakeries in Westeros. Right. Exactly. Nobody, nobody gets to just have a cake. Yeah. No one just chills, you know, like yeah. be with your misery. Yeah. <laughs> you know, cry over your missing hand or the child yeah. you killed. Yeah. The only, the only time you sing a song is when you're literally about to <laughs> slaughter an entire house of people. Yeah. Celebrations <laughs> are kind of weird in, in Westeros. Yeah. But uh, yeah, and in and in the world of, of Miyazaki, yeah, Mononoke is much angrier mm -hmm. than a lot of his other films. Mm -hmm. People are dying and they don't know why. Yeah, um, tides are turning, worlds are changing. Howl's Moving Castle kind of goes there too. Mm -hmm. This sense of uh, an anachronistic feudal system that yeah. somehow also incorporates the present day mechanism, right? Mechanization, industrialism. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you describe it, but it does. It struck me uh, going through it again, just preparing for this, that. Yeah, the basic conflict is between a princess, a prince, and somebody who just wants to build stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's very, it's interesting. So I I rewatched it just recently. Which uh, version? Um, do you so prefer? I well, I um, most of the times that I've watched it, I've watched the dubbed version, which I think is actually uniquely high quality. Mm -hmm. I mean the. The typical thing is to say, oh, well, you got to watch it with subtitles. The dub version is terrible. I think in this case, the dub version is actually really good. Um, but I had I had watched it like a few months ago, the, the dubbed version. So I'm like, okay, this time for a comparison, I'll watch it with subtitles because it's still fresh in my mind. Right. Um, and it is really interesting to sort of see the differences because I think the dub does capture the meaning as compared to the English translation and the subtitles. But there's just a certain... Um, almost like an ominousness that is captured in the subtitle translations versus the dub. I think they made it, they made certain things more playful in the dubbed version, perhaps because they were trying to sell it more as a kid's movie, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, but there's this real sense of foreboding and doom in the dialogue. Like there's, and this is even just dialogue from like some of the minor characters, but there's multiple times where they say, you know, they're talking about, uh, Ashitaka's curse and someone says well actually the whole world is cursed or the whole world is the curse yeah, yeah. so there's this real there is this real darkness and anger there oh it's a very ominous film yeah yeah and um, yeah my first experience was also the dub version because it was this big deal that Miramax mm -hmm. was bringing it over rather than Disney and that they you know they had made this agreement with Miyazaki and with, and with Ghibli that they weren't going to change a frame they mm. would change the sound but they wouldn't alter the images 
And I think, I think, yeah, it's not a, it's not a children's film, but the actors seem to be relating to it as though it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, this might be a good way to put it. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's maybe because people just had no experience with anime outside right. of, of the fandom. Yeah, because, I mean, this is this is going back 20 years now, so yeah. I think, you know, we almost take it for granted that animation can be for adults, but this is one of the first films that maybe started to make people realize that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it is interesting to look at it from that perspective. I wonder if they made a new dubbed version today, how it would be. In fact, I almost wonder if it would be too dark now in the Game of Thrones yeah. era, you know? You'd go further. Yeah. You'd push harder. But the designs of the characters are softer somehow, I think, than, mm-hmm. than the, they'll lead you away. The imp that uh, Billy Bob Thornton voices right. is definitely yeah. not a dark character. He's right, ear to ear grin for his entire yeah. existence. Yeah, he, he's actually a really interesting character. So something that I was thinking when I rewatched it this last time, uh, his character Jiko, and now maybe this is something that I was picking up in the subtitles versus you know kind of being carried away by Billy Bob Thornton's charismatic performance, but I think he is the closest thing the movie has to a true villain which is not something that I thought in the past when I watched it. You know, I thought, oh, wow, it's actually amazing that one of the most, uh, one of the characters you're able to empathize with most is actually this guy who is just trying to get the head of the forest spirit. Isn't it cool that they made him kind of a good guy? Or that at least that's how he came across in the past to me. But now that I see it, there's certain things that I picked up on um, where he's really just a complete villain despite his charisma he, like he's oh yeah pure manipulator yeah exactly pure manipulator um beyond just the fact that he's out for his own self-interest which all of the characters are on some level except perhaps ashitaka he is upset and this is something i hadn't picked up on before he's upset that lady eboshi is fighting the samurai who are trying to take over iron town instead of fighting the wolves and the boars in the forest right so he's I mean, if you're looking at it from kind of like a species point of view, he's extremely chauvinistic, right? He just wants to wipe out everyone who's not human. Right. Um, well, they're in his way. They're in his way, yeah. And the and another thing that uh, really stood out to me was that, and, you know, this is, this is a main plot point, so it's obviously something I realized before, but it didn't stand out to me just how evil this is. But he orchestrates the whole battle between the humans and the boars just as a diversion so that they can get the forest spirit to appear and try to heal the boar god. So he literally spends hundreds, at least, of lives of the human force, not to mention, you know, basically committing genocide against the boars just so he can get the head of the spirit. I mean, he's a, he's an evil guy. Yeah. But it's interesting that he's so uh, compelling and charismatic that at least the first few times I watched the movie, I was kind of rooting for him, yeah. you know? And I think that's why the voice casting of Thornton is so interesting, too, because mm-hmm. he's, like, that's right after Sling Blade. He hadn't right. really done a lot of mainstream stuff. Yeah. And here he is, just being charming and Southern and casual. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, mm-hmm. you don't really want to hear what he's saying. You just like yep. to listen to his voice. Yeah. It's, um, it's one of those weird situations where the movie, like the dubbed version actually does a better job of shining you on of, of sort of coaxing mm-hmm. you into the same position as the right. protagonist it's yep. like oh yeah this is a nice i mean it sounds like a fine idea it's yep. very practical i'm sure yep. we'll win <laughs> yeah and, exactly. and suddenly you're covered in blood and everything's mm-hmm. gone horribly wrong and the forest yep. spirit is angry with you yeah that's right 
by the way, if you're not um, familiar with Princess Mononoke and you're listening to this episode, it's okay if you pause and listen and watch the. Yes, movie. there there will be a lot of spoilers. Yeah. Sorry, and also that. it will sound like we're having strokes because there's <laughs> there's no way that you can discuss the mythology of this film with a in a straight line, right? It, it's yes. all this amazing jumble of yeah lifted iconography and borrowed things and mm-hmm. and, and kind of quasi religious. Tendence and mm-hmm. tenants. I I don't. I mean, I, I we, we went over this before we started taping, but I interviewed Miyazaki about it when he came to TIFF with the film in '97, I guess, or '98, and he said that he didn't really care about the mythology, about seeing how it all fit together. He just went with the ideas that he went with, which I found absolutely shocking mm-hmm. at the time. You know, like in a kind of disgraceful fanboy response. Like, <laughs> but, but 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 if it doesn't mean anything, why do I watch your movie? <laughs> But that is like that way of working is really interesting to me because as opposed to someone like Yamada Toro who mm. writes in a fugue state and then figures out what it all means, mm-hmm. Miyazaki says he doesn't care what it means, or he was just screwing with us because he was cranky. Right? <laughs> yeah, I almost wonder if uh, if how much of that is him kind of playing the North American audience. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because there's so much that clearly has deep roots in Japanese culture. Um, but I mean, I personally only know enough about Japanese culture to just see that it has deep roots in the culture. I don't right. know the specificity of what he's referencing. Yeah. So I wonder, I wonder how much of it is him just either taking various things from Japan, not really caring about how he combines them because uh, it's more about the narrative to him, or was that comment that he made more just him being like, ah, you know, these white guys aren't going to know anyway. <laughs> Polishing your legend outside of Japan. I mean, I I assume that all of his films play differently to a Japanese audience. Yeah, I have to imagine. It would be really interesting to uh, discuss this movie with someone from Japan. Mm -hmm. And actually, so the first time that I saw it was in a class called Popular Culture East and West. Oh, cool. Which was taught by a professor who was a white Canadian guy, but obviously just like very, very fascinated with uh, Asian culture of all types. And the class was kind of just an excuse for him to show Miyazaki and Kurosawa films and talk about them. But I mean, I was obviously totally on board for that. So oh, God, I would uh, too. Yeah. yeah. So it was. So the the East and West was a bit of a misnomer. It was more just Kurosaki and Miyazaki or uh, Kurosawa and Miyazaki. Um, <laughs> but yeah. So so he he had a lot of uh, interesting points that he brought up, um, although. With uh, related to Princess Mononoke, we didn't discuss as much um, the relation of elements of the narrative to Japanese culture, but he talked a lot about how elements of the animation were related to traditional Japanese art styles, which oh, okay. I found very interesting because, you know, on the surface, you can't really see it. Um, but something that he spoke about is how a big thing in traditional Japanese art is a sense of motion, but captured through stillness. So you have this tension between motion and stillness in so much of the art. You know, if you think about the, the traditional drawings of the waves and stuff like that, you can kind of see this very clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has always stuck in my head whenever I rewatch Mononoke, because, you know, especially with, like, this weird wormy material that takes over uh the boar's body to make him into a demon it's just it's like constantly moving and yet somehow forming 
a solid mass. Yeah. So, you know, and with the, you know, the Nightwalkers goo or whatever it is at the end, again, it's very flowing and fluid and yet somehow solid. Yeah. Um, it's the tumors in Akira too. Like that yeah. sort of weird, um, it's fleshy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's fleshy in a way that nothing is in the West mm-hmm. unless it's a Cronenberg film or right, a exactly. special effect. And there, there's a sense of corruption that's mm-hmm. added by, by um, well, by Miyazaki, but I guess culturally, because uh, it, it's in Otomo, it's in mm-hmm. it's around mm-hmm. uh, the idea of invasion. And whenever I see something like that, I'm I'm always in in Japanese animation. I, I always end up thinking about you know post nuclear stuff, right. Hiroshima, Nagasaki, burns, and 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 the distortion and destruction of flesh that that country has a really specific, mm. really recent memory of. Interesting. Yeah, that's a great Yeah, it's too. like it's infected mm-hmm. pop culture mm-hmm. yeah. there. And, I mean, Akira's all about that. Yeah. But with this, uh, Miyazaki doesn't often do something like this. I mean, right. when he does demons, they're not like that. Yeah, you know, the demons in uh, Spirited Away, for instance, mm-hmm. very, very different. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is clearly a, a choice that yeah. he made, which, again, he refused to explain. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I mean, I'm, uh, as someone who did an arts undergraduate degree, you know, I'm of the mind that even if everything in the movie had no uh, real intention behind it, you know, say he just did the demon stuff because it looked real cool, which it did. Uh, it's, you know, it still has meaning. It can still certainly be deconstructed, but it is, you know, especially for me too, as a writer, it's very intriguing to try and put yourself in his shoes mm. and figure out what he was thinking. And the fact that he uh, refused to explain it, as you're saying, that just makes it even more intriguing, yeah. you know? So maybe he knew what he was doing. <laughs> yeah, it is something though. I mean, it's, it, it is... A cohesive accomplishment of mm-hmm. storytelling. It mm-hmm. creates a new mythology. Right. Um, I mean, to make a stretch of West and East, like the same way Star Wars does, mm-hmm. by taking pieces of the Hidden Fortress and a bunch of other things and yep. finding a new context for it. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, exactly. There are plenty of fantasies about forest creatures and princes and princesses and, yep. and a clash between... I mean, Beauty and the Beast is about the clash between modernity and, mm-hmm. and, um, and classic uh, mythology, yep. sort of. But this one... It doesn't do any of the things you expect it to. Once right. you've established the once once you understand what the world is, it mm-hmm. still refuses to play into existing structures. Yeah, and I think um, yeah, something that's really interesting to me is how much the film has kind of been interpreted from an environmentalist point of view, oh, which yeah. is obviously there in so much of it. But um, I do wonder if the the interpretation of the movie is just about environmentalism is perhaps too simplistic. Um, or at least it's not talking about environmentalism in the same way that we would normally expect a Western movie to do so. Right. Um, because, you know, usually it's like there's a big demon or there's something created by man, some sort of monster that's uh, threatening the environment as you know a representation of man's greed and hubris and you know with the help of a plucky human the creatures of the forest defeat the big thing and now everything is in harmony again right um but the interesting thing to me in princess mononoke is you have first of all multiple groups of humans uh with multiple goals none of which are good for the environment right um, but some of which are worse than others 
And then you have multiple points of view from the animals themselves who, you know, you have the boars, the wolves, and the apes. And they're all in conflict with each other at the same time as they're in conflict with the humans. Um, So it really is a war of competing interests. It's not just about uh, humanity and modernity threatening uh, the environment and those two things are opposed cohesive holes. Um, which is to me, that's way more realistic. You know, that's, that's how life is. Everyone just wants to, uh, be out for themselves and everyone has conflicting interests and that that's what leads to war and devastation. Um, and the, so the conclusion of the movie, as much as it does kind of strike a positive note where, okay, you know, the forest spirit has kind of sacrificed itself so that nature can be reset uh, San is going to go live in the forest. Ashitaka will live in Irontown. Lady Eboshi has kind of had an epiphany. They're going to rebuild Irontown, it seems, in a way that's more harmonious with nature. So you do have kind of a balance reached at the end. But everything has been destroyed. <laughs> um, you know, you have this war of total destruction before a positive resolution can be reached. And I wonder if this is actually a much better comment about environmentalism you know especially now that we're in the era of uh the devastating effects of climate change you know how how far is this going to progress before we actually do strike some sort of balance with nature you know maybe miyazaki had it right everything is going to be destroyed before we finally get our act together you know yeah well it makes it much less allegorical right Mm -hmm. it makes it much more immediate to actually not ha- to to have a happy ending that's earned through struggle and misery and mm-hmm. grief, mm-hmm. and yeah, uh, that, I, I'm, again, that's something that anime does a lot more often than right. North American stuff does mm-hmm. is destroy. You know, all, all the the Hunger Games gives you the 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 pleasant veil of mm. I grew up after even right. Terminator, right? right? Like you yep. you have that distance in mm-hmm. the characters mm-hmm. and. This is like, no, no, this is during. This is happening. Yeah. This, this is, is the apocalypse yeah, right now. <laughs> you're witnessing, I mean, it happens in Akira. It happens in this. Mm-hmm. Akira is not my only point of reference, but it's a really good one. It is, yeah. Especially for this conversation. Um, and, you know, Ghost in the Shell is after something. Mm-hmm. Whatever's happened, the robot conversion, they yeah. fought. Like, clearly, they fought some Terminators right. to get yeah. to the world they have. Yeah. But the, the idea of paying a price uh, is mm-hmm. something that runs through all of Miyazaki's work. Mm-hmm. And maybe the greatest single theme he has i think after the the early pleasures into the darker stuff that came later you know, like uh, howl has it spirited away has it mm-hmm. you know you lose your parents yep if you don't fix this you lose them forever yeah uh howl has a woman a child cursed to be an old woman but not able to tell anyone about it which is somehow the most horrible thing of all <laughs> yeah um and and this is you know you can save yourself but it's going to hurt. Mm-hmm. It's going to, the, the curse can be broken, but yeah, as you say, the whole world is cursed. It's not going to be an easy fix. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, I wonder how much of it is, uh, <laughs> this is me being very cynical now, Please. but I wonder how much of it is that in North America, we can't have that perspective because we're mostly the ones destroying the world. Yeah. I figured, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, no, we can't, we can't be forced to confront any of this cost mm-hmm. because if we did that would change everything yeah if you actually right. have a conversation with people about what they're doing mm-hmm. um i mean i i just i remember the 
here in Toronto, the, the big argument when compost buckets came in. Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't want to have to separate my garbage. Right. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> someone takes it away. Yeah. It's not like you have to go and bury it. I, the, just the, everything is a stage. Everything mm-hmm. is, everything is a, you know, every new idea is met with resistance mm-hmm. and so on. And that's, I mean, that's what Princess Mononoke is all about. Yeah. But in the real world, you don't, oh, I mean, we don't always have to kick and scream at every tiny stage of progress mm-hmm. i mean i don't mm-hmm. mind using a reusable water right. bottle yeah it's fine uh, it's been god i was in new york in 2007 when they started doing the push against bottled water when they mm. finally had to actively you know they were taking out ads reminding people that new york tap water is the cleanest in the world mm-hmm. or the cleanest mm-hmm. in north america or something and there were there was a program where i think it was in Dwayne reed stores that started it but there was a program where if you took your water bottle into this, any place with the sticker, you could refill your water bottle for oh, free. Yeah. And it's like, why wouldn't you do that? Yeah. It's so simple. <laughs> yeah, the things, yeah, the solutions are often so obvious. Yeah. And, yet. and it saves you, you know, people buy five bottles of water in a day. It saves you $5 a day there. Mm-hmm. There you go. There's your argument. You carry it around. No, no, what? Yeah. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's crazy. Um, human urge for comfort and sameness and routine mm-hmm. uh, requires an almost um, you know as in the film it requires an almost supernatural intervention before you break right. your uh, your habits mm-hmm. and I think that's like the best allegorical value that Princess Mononoke has if anything yeah. it's just like no think about things it just it's a movie that argues we should simply be more conscious of our impact on the world mm-hmm. but if we don't a lot of giant boars are going to die yeah that's right yeah, and I think to to me something that stood out to me too on on my most recent watch was, um, figuring out who your allies are and who your allies should be. Yeah. You know, uh, just in in kind of a on a metaphorical level, you know, because it struck me that I actually I love the character of Lady Eboshi. You know, she as much as she's kind of the villain in a sense because she is running. Uh, the ironworks she has taken in uh people who i mean in in the dubbed version it's presented as prostitutes in the subtitled version i don't know if i had just missed this in the dubbed version but in the subtitled version it also mentions people who had been sold into slavery Mm. so she's uh so she has prostitutes, slaves, and then as she reveals to Ashitaka, she has the lepers in the back making her guns for her. So she has all these oppressed people that she's gathered to her, and she's given them a new life. And, you know, they're obviously incredibly loyal to her. Yeah. So, uh, and from their perspective, she's a great person. Right, exactly. So I, I, to me, she's a heroic figure. I think actually part of the, part of the twist, maybe just in my own thinking, is that Jiko... Um, played by Billy Bob Thornton especially has all of the hallmarks of like the hero of an American film you know he's kind of this lone wolf out for himself and so he comes across as a hero perhaps on the first watch whereas Aboshi uh, despite the fact that she's doing good for these people, you're like, oh, well, but really she's a bad person because she, you know, she kills the forest spirit. She's mining all this iron out of the earth. But I think actually she is a hero and he is a villain um, yeah. is is kind of the flaw that I've made in my mind, uh, despite the fact that she does kill the forest spirit. Because I think, um, and actually this is something I picked up on too, that uh, Jiko was actually threatening her she had he had sharpshooters positioned ready to fire on her town so i think really 
even her killing the forest spirit is just her looking out for her people because it there's a threat there you know something something bad is going to happen to her in her town if she doesn't do this so even that i think is an act of necessity but what really struck me this time around is that um so you have lady eboshi who i think is the most heroic out of like the human leaders apart from ashitaka who's like you know he's separate from everyone i may have spoken too soon when i said everyone is governed by self-interest she is pretty selfless right yeah um, I mean, she has she's sort of taken on the interests of the people around her as her self-interest. Right. And in a way it is because she's also making a life for herself. We don't know what her background was before this. Right. Um, I, I, but, mean, I assume I'm just purely based on your on my classic reading of, mm-hmm. of movie tropes that she also was some sort of sort right. of enter prostitute. Exactly. Yeah. She is, so she was the first to get out. Yeah, I, th- I think so, too. And so, you know, she is. It is for herself, but she's taking all these people along with her, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And interestingly, uh, Moro, the leader of the wolves, is kind of more... um, Even though she's she's like the most dangerous animal, but she's less inclined to these massive conflicts than the boar gods are, because they're the ones who are pushing, no, we have to go confront the humans, and she kind of tells them, like, they're going to wipe you out. They have guns. And the boars are like, no, it doesn't matter. We have to go for our honor. It's better if we all die, but we face them in battle. So Moro is more, you know, she's concerned about the self-preservation of her tribe as much as Lady Eboshi is. So it's like, if you could have just got, like, if Lady Eboshi yeah. and the wolves could have just got together, I, you know, the and the wolves also, the in a way, despite, like, the personal animus between the two leaders there, the wolves somehow seemed more willing to compromise in a way because they had kind of ceded the mountain territory, whereas the apes still wanted to take back the mountain territory. Right. So I think if there, if there could have been a, an alliance between Lady Eboshi and the wolves, they could have defeated everyone else and everything would have been good. And that's kind of where it gets to at the end with Ashitaka and San kind of brokering that yeah, piece. But it's just... But everything has been destroyed. It's the you fragments know. of those yeah. populations. Yeah, know, exactly. they've already had to see... Yeah, it, you have to see what you would lose. Mm-hmm. You actually have to lose it. It's right. not just about, well, hypothetically. That's right. Yeah. You, you have to be a survivor now. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah it's, uh, again, as I said, an incredibly interwoven... Uh, complicated mythology that doesn't make any sense if you step back and look at it. Because yeah. surely apes and boars would get along, but no. Right. <laughs> uh, but it is, it's an amazing work that way because you shouldn't be able to follow it. It's mm-hmm. so insanely complicated. Yes. And that, yeah, that's something that's really interesting is I was just looking at the Wikipedia page for it. <laughs> when you read the summary on Wikipedia... It makes no sense. Yeah, <laughs> You're like, sure. what the hell am I reading? I mean, I remember the experience of seeing it with people at TIFF who, who well, at a press screening, and I think we saw it in the Cineplex building, so mm-hmm. we, there would have been 30 people there, yeah. tops. Yeah. And Alliance Releasing had it, so it was a pre-screening, it was before the festival, and it was all, all anyone knew was this is the Miyazaki film. Mm-hmm. And a couple of us knew who he was, and a couple of, a lot more didn't. And there were people who, at the very beginning, you could kind of hear shuffling in their seats, mm-hmm. trying to figure mm-hmm. out if they should invest or not. There's that. Sometimes it happens. There's this weird moment where you're not sure you're going to like something, mm-hmm. and you give it a chance. Yeah. And I could hear them doing that, and mm-hmm. some of them went with it, and some of them didn't. But afterwards, there were a few older critics just complaining about, well, mm-hmm. why should I care? It doesn't make any sense. And right. It's like, I came out of it wanting to understand more about it, mm-hmm. but I didn't 
reject any of it. Mm-hmm. I found mm-hmm. it, I mean, I was 30 at the time. I found it really interesting and I still do. It's, it's a convoluted, impossible, mm-hmm. magical film. Yeah, and I, I mean, from, uh, from like a writing perspective... I'm just in awe of how much sense it does actually make. Yeah. Because, you know, when you read the summary, it seems insane. And yeah. you're like, this is wh- like this is just random words strung together with yeah, verbs, yeah. you know? Um, I but, town. Yeah. <laughs> but it, yeah, like... Wait, there's been an industrial revolution, but there are also talking wolves. Right, exactly. But for me, when I watch the movie, at every point, everything makes perfect sense. Like the narrative is just laid out perfectly. Mm -hmm. And I have such admiration for that. And I think that as much as uh, Miyazaki is obviously a visionary director and that's, and he gets so much credit for that as he should, he may not get enough credit for being a visionary screenwriter. I think even just if it was someone else directing these movies and all he had done was the screenplay, it's still an incredible work from his part. Yeah, you know? his, his ability to draw clear emotional lines, mm-hmm. even when it's all chaos yeah. narratively, is amazing to yeah. me. Because just, again, setting up the curse is a perfect way in because, mm-hmm. well, now we need to know how that comes out. And yeah. You're just invested immediately in this character. Mm-hmm. And then we find out he's probably not the hero. And then there's right. somebody else. And there's yeah. somebody else. And it's, um, yeah, it's in, an amazingly compelling work mm-hmm. for something that, if you sit and talk it through, just becomes impassable right like, yeah i mean imagine imagine him trying to give an elevator pitch of yeah. his movie in hollywood right like it would never happen in a world of visionaries a world of ghosts and spirits and talking okay yeah okay start over in a world yeah no it would be but i mean and, and that's i guess that's what you get to be when you are revered mm-hmm. when you that's have right. a reputation that precedes you and you yeah. can just say oh this next one's going to be about this mm-hmm. i mean even the title howl's moving castle right what what is it how is a person why Mm -hmm. does it move it doesn't matter it's Mm -hmm. like there it is you can see it you can point to it and it's walking on its little legs that's right you can hear him say i'm gonna make a movie about this and instead of saying that's crazy you say okay what does (laughs) it look like i'm on board yeah (laughs) yeah um you know every time he announces he's retiring he changes his mind i thought yeah i just heard recently he's apparently unretired now. yeah which is which is what i want Mm -hmm. i want him to be cranky and unpredictable and willing to do whatever the hell he wants because mm-hmm. that's the best stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know if I mean, he's he's getting he's getting up there. I don't mm-hmm. know if he'll live to finish another film, but I certainly right. want to see what he attempts. Yeah, for sure. And was this your first experience of him as well? The first time you saw um, him? Yeah. So in that in that same class that I mentioned where I first saw it, we also watched Spirited Away. Okay. I'm trying to remember which one we actually watched first. I think it was Princess Mononoke first. Mm-hmm. But yeah, those were the those were the first two that I watched. You in hadn't that seen Jotaro or, or Kiki's. No, Lizard. not at all. So I had you know I had a very um, I grew up during the era of anime films, but I had just somehow completely avoided them for my whole teenage years almost. And I guess mm-hmm. I was. Uh, 19 or 20 when I finally saw this in the yeah. class. I mean, I know people who never paid attention to any anime simply because they all thought it was Speed or They thought it was all Speed Racer. Right. They just you Or Battle of the Planets or whatever the, mm-hmm. the dubbed versions of crap that we oh, saw. Oh, see, maybe that was 80s. it because what I, what I watched when I was growing up was Dragon Ball Z. That was okay. the one anime I did watch and it was just like I actually loved it because I just kind of loved the weird world of it but it just got so aggravating at a point because the whole joke about that show is... The entire show are, is just characters powering up 
So you have two guys, they're going to fight, and they power up for, like, 12 episodes. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my, like, I can't, I'm sorry, I just cannot spend my, like, 3.30 to 4 o'clock half hour after school watching these guys power up every week. <laughs> that's pretty reasonable. I mean, yeah. you know, you've got stuff to do. Yep, that's right. I was busy at 12 years old, you know. <laughs> But there's so much good stuff out there now to discover, which is right. great. I mean, I'm, uh, they've just announced that uh, a company called G Kids, I think, has just mm-hmm. gotten the rights, to the North American rights from Disney, and they'll be reissuing all of the uh, the, the Ghibli uh, Miyazaki oh, wow. films. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to a couple mm-hmm. of those because it turns out I was shocked to discover I don't have Princess Mononoke mm-hmm. on Blu-ray, uh, and there's some gorgeous stuff that I mm-hmm. want to revisit in, mm-hmm. in the highest possible quality. Yeah, totally. I um, mean, I got a. They released, when he announced his retirement, they released this Blu-ray box set of all his movies, yeah. which I have. So um, that's how I've been watching them. But uh, there's like some of the earlier ones that are on there, I still haven't got around to watching yet. So I'm still still got to check that out. Excellent. Yeah. Well, um, before I let you go on and do that uh, and start <laughs> pre-ordering stuff, uh, the last question on the podcast is always mm-hmm. the same as well, which is basically, is there anything of Princess Mononoke that you have used or borrowed or stolen or absorbed into your own creative DNA? Oh, interesting. Um, well, especially given your particular right. career arc, I'm, I'm yeah. fascinated. Yeah. Um, I think it's that it really is that thing about looking at all of the different perspectives of the characters. You know, I mentioned at the beginning, that's mm. that's always what I've been striving to accomplish, you know, even before I saw this movie. But I think that what that movie crystallized for me more than anything is that you can do it. You know, so I, I always, as a writer, had this idea in the back of my head that these are the kinds of stories that I want to tell. And then I saw this movie by Miyazaki and I was like, that bastard, he did it. <laughs> it is possible. You can do it. So um, it, it didn't implant the idea in my head, but it certainly made me continue to strive to achieve it and to tell those kinds of stories and to... Uh, come up with narratives that are that complex to the point where they don't make any sense when you try to summarize them but that really make you empathize with every particular character's perspective when that character is on screen Mm -hmm. so i uh i hope that i've achieved that embodied and uh i hope that i will continue to get even better at telling that kind of story yeah what's so what's next do you have another plan um there's there's lots of stuff in the works so i don't know if there's anything that i can talk about right now but uh joseph khan and i who's the director of bodied we have a lot of other things that we're talking about so hopefully one of those comes to fruition but i think uh i can safely say that he and i will be working on something again very soon excellent yeah forest spirits anything you know maybe well actually it's interesting because he uh was born in south korea but he's very very american and every time that someone wants to uh kind of do an unfair critique of his music videos let's say they always try to say that he's stealing imagery from korean music videos for the simple fact that he was born in South Korea and he's like you guys don't understand I don't care about any of this stuff like I don't care about anime I'm I'm so American he's like the most American person I've ever met so uh, but it it, it is kind of uh, it's interesting to think that like um, I might be the one bringing uh, the less North American influences into our storytelling oh fascinating now I really want to see Body yeah I wanted to see it anyway but it's yeah it's uh it's definitely i will say this about bodied 
Uh, like Princess Mononoke, it's definitely not a story you've seen anywhere else ever before. So I'm uh, very curious and extremely nervous to see how people are going to react to it. But uh, I think that is that's kind of the price of creating art that uh, hasn't been seen before. You don't know exactly how people are going to react. So I hope it's positive. I'm sure there will also be a lot of negative reactions, but I hope on the whole it's a positive. Oh, it's Midnight Madness. They'll, they'll love you. They'll love you unless you betray them completely. <laughs> and which case they'll eat you. Oh, great. <laughs> either way, you'll find out soon enough. Yep. I'll either be uh, hailed a hero or stabbed on the forum floor. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> My thanks to Alex Larson, who will be taking Bodied to Austin later this week for its American premiere at Fantastic Fest on Sunday, September 24th, with a repeat screening Wednesday, September 27th. You can find Alex on Twitter at AlexKTwist, all one word, and Princess Mononoke is going to be released on Blu-ray and DVD by G-Kids on October 17th as part of that Ghibli catalog wave we were just talking about. You'll want to collect them all. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Simcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, that would be greatly appreciated. Um, if you're going to write a thesis about the inevitability of technology overtaking the natural world, maybe not this week. You might annoy the Borgods. Thanks for listening. <laughs>